1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict.
3: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibbie Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com, where I'll always keep you updated on what I'm up to. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's sponsor is Unsweetened NYC, which was started by a woman named Nora Neiderman, a 45-year-old designer and mom of two boys and a New York native. They specialize in a variety of high-end tanks and tees that range from $95 to $150, which I know is a lot, but they're really awesome. Uh, And they're all about being a badass mom. And their mission is to empower women while wearing their statement pieces, which are just awesome. So whether you're laughing or crying, they say, whispering or screaming, succeeding or failing, full of love or annoyed AF, we have you covered. (laughs) So that's Unsweetened NYC. They sent me these two adorable tank tops um, and not tank tops. Well, the kind of where the sleeves are cut off, but the rest of it is there, not tank, like um, sleeveless shirts. Anyway, uh, and they're really awesome, and I love supporting women-owned brands like this, so go check out Unsweetened NYC. Today I'm interviewing Brian Platzer over Skype. He is the author of The Body Politic and bed is Burning. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, The New York Times, The New Republic, and Salon, among other publications. A graduate of Columbia University with an MFA from Johns Hopkins, Brian currently teaches middle school English. He lives in Manhattan with his wife and two sons. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
3: Oh, me too. Can you please tell listeners what your latest book, The Body Politic, is about?
1: Absolutely. So The Body Politic is about a couple things. I think the easiest way to introduce you guys to it is that it is about a group of four friends who first meet after September 11th. And then the narrative of the novel begins right after Trump's election. So they are, one of the friends uh, worked on Hillary's campaign as dealing with his disappointment. Another one of the friends has a neurological disorder uh, similar to my own, which keeps him bedridden for most of the time. And under the stress of the new political reality and his illness, secrets from their past arise to the surface and people are in positions to confront those who maybe uh hurt them in the past and to come to terms with their relationships in the present. I
3: mean, that sounds like a great description.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope
3: so. I, I, <laughs> no, the book is great. The book is great. I always am so interested in how authors describe their
1: own books. And
3: I don't know. It's like I start listening to the story just hearing you summarize it. So that's awesome.
2: No,
1: I appreciate it. And it is so funny being asked to summarize a, a novel because it's not like a an op-ed argument, right? Where I'm like, I think the streets should be safer. And like, I can give you the three reasons why, but trying to, trying to get, you know, four years of psychological friendship reality into a couple of sentences at the, the top of a podcast is always a challenge. So I'm, Pleased that I that.
3: <laughs> Thanks for rising to the challenge. I don't know why I do. This. I don't know why I do this to people. Maybe I'm just stressing everybody out by asking. But sorry. No, but
1: you're right. <laughs> Someone needs to know. It's the same as the back copy of the book, right? Like you, you have to approximate it, but it's never actually like reading the book itself. It's funny. This book.
3: Well, if I were to contrast the description to the experience of reading it, I feel like the only thing I would say is that it goes very deeply in a first-person way into the experience of having a neurological disorder and the effects of that happening to a man and and what the impact on his life, work, and family is. And I found that aspect of it super interesting myself. So while it is I, obviously I about good. all the other stuff, that piece was one of the most interesting to me because I hadn't seen it done really anywhere else before, especially in the way that you did it. So I feel like that really differentiated this novel from others, especially knowing now that it was based on your own neurological disorder. So I think that sort of infused it with even more meaning.
1: Well, I really appreciate you saying that. I I think one of the reasons why it comes less frequently, just the, the discussion of chronic illness in general comes less frequently from a man is is a fascinating one to, to spend a minute on, if if you don't mind the digression. I, I it's think not that,
3: a digression. This is the whole point, is to discuss oh, the book. Oh, great. So, yeah. Perfect.
1: Then, I mean, I, I think the main reason why it's mostly women who, who discuss the difficulties of chronic illness, because the medical system and our society is particularly ill-equipped to treat women in these conditions. So I think women are taken less seriously when they say that they have chronic conditions, you know, they're, they're told to, to just like get more sleep or have a baby or don't have a baby or drink a glass of water. Or I I think that they're blamed, you know, for the hormonal issues or however they're more easily dismissed in a way that men are not. So I, I think that rightfully so many of the stories of chronic illness and suffering come from women who are just so exasperated by going through these conditions and not being taken seriously in a way that, that they deserve to for, for these life altering and in many occasion ruining situations. I mean, I, I've spoken to to hundreds and hundreds of, of patients who are suffering with chronic illness like I am. And I'd say almost all of them are women who, who say like, thank you for writing the article in the New York times about your condition. Now I can, I can show it to my, and then fill in the blank. And that blank is always my boss, my husband, my boyfriend, or my doctor, because they're, There's just so many people who aren't being taken seriously when they come forward with their descriptions of constant but undiagnosable pain or dizziness or anything along those lines.
3: It's true. I mean, and it's so frustrating when easy tests can't pinpoint what it is, so you can't even explain it, right? When they keep ruling out things.
1: Exactly. Where doctors are so good at dealing with their own siloed specific areas, where if they take an x-ray of the bone and the bone's broken, they know how to fix it. Like, they're so good at the plumbing of the body. But when it gets into these systems where, you know, whether it's irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, which is you know, the connection between the stomach and the brain, but it doesn't exist in either one of those areas or a neurological disorder, an imbalanced disorder like the one I have, which is the combination of eyes and ears and muscles and brain. Those are the systems where things fall apart. And I think that on the male side, before I experienced this, I didn't realize the extent to which like my performative masculinity if if that's a way to describe it it existed like until it was taken away from me like there was there was there was some type of like I think women have a good vocabulary to have a vocabulary to discuss chronic illness it's just like immoral and crappy like you know <laughs> words like hysteria and all these terms that blame the woman for their condition exist but they're useless whereas for men I think a lot of that vocabulary doesn't even exist which is why being a, a man who suffers from these issues, I think is full of shame and silence and loneliness, which is maybe not severe, as severe as as uh, the, the woman's experience going through it, but but definitely different and worthy of its own depiction. I think that that leads to a lot of the the opioid addiction that we see, a lot of the suicides that are that are coming up because of just a lack of vocabulary to talk about. Male illness and loneliness and fear
3: it's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's tragic, really. I mean, and you'd think that I mean, not that not to discount the medical profession who particularly at this time is, you know, falling over themselves to save the world and everything. But that that there is not a better way that they don't even have the tools necessarily that they would need to figure these things out, even no matter how advanced all the technology is for diagnosing.
1: Exactly. It's, It's the tools, it's the training, it's the time, and it's the financial incentives. So doctors are so good and they work so hard and they're trained so rigorously to deal with issues that, they know how to confront, you know? So like a, a brain surgeon is a is a miracle worker. It's a magician. It's, it's unbelievable what he or she can accomplish. But where it comes to these more amorphous, ambiguous conditions that aren't fixable, that need to be treated and managed and discussed, the financial incentives aren't there to spend the time necessary with the patients. Insurance companies don't pay for chatting for two hours in the way that they do for running these medical MRIs and CT scans and uh, x-rays. And so there are millions of us left where we just have things that are not functioning correctly and doctors who are, I don't think unwilling, but I see but for the most part in a system that is not as good at handling the constant than it is at handling the acute. So interesting.
3: I mean... You know, And to hear it in the general is one thing, but to hear it, how it affects an individual is quite another, right? Like we can sit here and talk about the system yeah, itself, you're, you're. but you are going through this and you are having to deal with this in your personal life in every way, shape, and form. And then of course you turn it into fiction. So other people can sort of insert themselves into that too. And the frustration and that comes with that is probably, I mean, I could sense at least in this novel, and maybe it wasn't coming from you, maybe it was character development, but there was a lot of anger in the book about the condition itself.
1: Absolutely. And it's that, I mean, that's exactly right. And it's, it's an anger that's almost an irrational anger that I felt that I put into the character because I feel like people who are chronically ill, I wanted to depict it in the book in a way that I'd never seen it depicted before, where there's just a a fury about everything, where there, I think the character expresses anger about the friends who do reach out all the time, who say, like, how are you feeling today? How are you doing today? Because the answer is like, I'm always feeling terribly, stop asking me. But he's as angry with the people who don't reach out, because like, don't they realize that I'm always feeling terrible? There's this... The combination of experiencing symptoms, in my case of dizziness, where I couldn't be alone with my kids, I couldn't work, I couldn't teach, I couldn't write, I couldn't fuck on the phone, my vision was distorted, I couldn't get out of bed for months at a time, the combination of going through the suffering of the daily symptoms and the fear of not knowing whether those symptoms were going to last for a week or for a month or a year or the rest of my life, it just leads to so much, in retrospect, what was depression, but In the time, it was just frustration and and anger. And in the book, I did want to compare the feeling of the individual who's suffering from these things, of that frustration and impotence and anger, with, I I think, a lot of people at the time, at least in New York, where where we live, after Trump's election, felt a, a version of that, a version of, like, I can't believe our country chose its worst citizen to become its president. And, like, the fact that this guy admits that he sexually assaults women, and then we choose to make him our leader. I think that there was not identical, but a similar kind of like fury and discombobulation and uncertainty about the world we're living in. And and I had never felt that either personally to that extreme before my illness or societally. Um, you know, at least like 9-11 was an external event that happened to us where the election of 2016, I, I felt, was, a, was something that we did to ourselves. And, of course, I didn't feel it as acutely as I did the, the years and years of total incapacitation. But I felt that there was a similar enough emotion there to allow the novel to open up a little bit and to allow you know, the, the, some of the stronger female characters to confront people who have assaulted them in the past as a reaction to the political moment, et cetera, where everybody is feeling this need to act and they act in very different ways, and some of them are successful, and some of them are less so. Hmm.
3: You know, I also found it really interesting in terms of where you placed all of the feelings of the characters and everything, how it impacted Tess, the wife. Because, right. of course, while you're having these things, not of course, but if you are married or in a relationship, your partner also has to absorb a lot of the impact of when somebody feels bad. I mean, even when my husband is, you know, he, he has a lot of chronic pain from his years of playing Professional and coaching tennis and everything, and you know right. even, you know when you deal with that, like and he doesn't even really talk about it that much, but even knowing that somebody you love is in pain and there's really not much you can do about it, right? It still affects your life and I, I don't mean to compare him to you, obviously, yours was completely incapacitating, and I'm no, so but sorry. I, I
1: appreciate you comparing him to me because so many of us have some version of this, some, some part of our bodies that don't work or our life that feels unfair, whether it's a, a death of somebody who matters a lot to you or a part of your body that doesn't work, you know, a, a relationship falls apart, a, a divorce. So many of us are, are walking around with this type of of latent frustration and pain we can't control that I wanted to to animate in this book. And the character of Tess is, is the wife of the guy who is suffering from this chronic pain. And she's She's had her whole life dealing with, you know, dealing with her own uh, childhood trauma. And now she just sort of can't get over the fact that that she has to do it again. Like not only did she get over a horrible incident in her childhood, but now her husband is being affected by this thing that is affecting her life. She was about to star on Broadway for the first time and she couldn't take the job because she has to take care of him. And. And the way that she tries to take power back in her life and feel in control is I think at the same time very understandable but has elements of selfishness and cruelty to it because like we're all human beings trying to trying to catch moments of, of pleasure and joy and, and respite you know within within a life that can be painful
3: Wow well having been through all this instead of I mean what is like the saving grace like what helped you
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hey, ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week.
3: you the most. And I know this isn't only about you, this is the book, but just for somebody who does know somebody who's going through chronic pain or the friends that you said you wanted them to call, but you also didn't want them to call.
1: Right, and, um, right.
3: You know, ha, wh- for the people who are suffering from this, like what's the, what's the message? Like what can help? And- there
1: are, no, no, that's, it's, it's a great question. It's one I've thought a lot about because I was so bad at articulating it when I myself was going through it that I think the, the book became something of an exercise in empathy when I was forced to think through what it was like to be the wife or the best friend or the mother or the business partner, you know, of somebody who was suffering in this way. And I've come up with two not fully satisfying answers, but that that got me close. Whereas I think that there is a way to be logistically helpful from people who aren't necessarily in your, you know, immediate family or live in the house with you, where I think staying how are you doing? The answer is going to be, I'm angry and I'm sad. But the answer, but if the question instead is like, can I pick you up dinner so you don't need to worry about feeding your kids? Or is there an errand specifically today that I can do for you? Like the more specific you can help out with, whether it's the person that's trouble doing laundry or is dreading going to a doctor by himself or is scared of, you know, her, her kid's you know, being alone or or anxious, like there are, everybody has logistical ways that somebody can offer concrete, easy help. And it's those people who are cooking dinner for my family because my wife had to work and I was incapacitated. Those are the people I feel most grateful for outside my, my core family. And for the people inside my core family, I think just empathy. I, I think that where, where my wife finally ended up and realizing she could provide me the best support is just saying, like, I know you're suffering. I love you. I'm here. And we'll deal with this together day by day. So that, that to me are the two things that that loved ones and friends can do, provide like concrete, tangible ways to make life easier and then to express empathy and steadfastness.
3: Yeah, it's funny as you're talking, this strikes me as so similar to grief I mean, this is—it's exactly, a, it's exactly yeah. the types of things you need when you're grieving someone. It's like the people to bring you food and the people to, you know, not be annoying about it, but just to know they're there and to empathize. And I mean, it's all the rest because, in a way, it is—it right. is a type of grief. You're like grieving the life you thought you were going to live, and
1: instead—that's exactly right. It's the same feeling of of anger and indignation and paralysis, mm-hmm. right? The combination of those those two factors. I, I think that that analogy is is perfect is, is exactly right. And like when you lose somebody, there are always this sort of annoying people in your life who you feel you need to like perform for, like to like, Oh, thank you so much for calling. Uh, No, I'm doing okay. Let the ones where it's almost takes more energy to deal with them trying to support you versus the people who say, how are you feeling today? And is there anything specific I can do to make your life easier? Are those calls are are so welcome, whether, whether one is in grief or, you know, physically suffering.
3: I, and I don't know about you, but I feel like people often are, they don't know what to do. And so they do nothing, right? Like I don't want to get in the way or I don't want to intrude or, you know, at least for, for, from a grief standpoint, I can't speak to chronic pain, but that doesn't help at all.
1: (laughs) Right, Right. Right. And I, and I don't, judge those people I mean I'm, I'm a little pissed off at them but I don't I don't like I understand why I understand the idea that like everybody has his or her own life and jobs or families or kids or responsibilities and the idea of entering into somebody else's you know dark space and trying to figure out how not to offend but delicately help it's it's exhausting and it's scary and I, and I totally get the idea of saying you know what I'm probably just an annoyance to him anyway like I'll pick him up again when when he comes out of this period of of his life. Uh, and that would be something that i that that I wish I had been able to to follow the advice of a little bit more when I was in it, and that the characters in my book go through as well the the feeling of just like I'm just going to hibernate until this is over, you know, and then I can start living my life again. And that was something I personally did, and that characters in my novel were doing up until the moment where they felt like they could confront the perpetrator of, of past, you know, crimes in, in their life. And I, I wish someone had shaken me a little bit. Well, not physically shaken me, I <laughs> terrible. but somebody would have come to me and said, like, we know you're feeling terrible pain. Like we know every day is difficult. We know you're scared, but like, try to laugh when you find things are funny. Like you don't need to, uh, perform your pain. We know you're suffering, but when things are tolerable, like try to enjoy that instead of resenting the fact that it's not like that all the time. And I I was a bit of a baby um, at the at the worst of it. And I, I it's reasonable. I forgive myself for it, but I, I think that for people who do suffer chronic chronic conditions, it's important not to like have a binary view of this where like either I have the condition So everything is awful and I'm going to wait until I no longer do. And then when I no longer do, I'll, you know, rejoice and then have a a big donut or something or whatever you do when when you rejoice. Like it's, it's good to try to sneak in moments of pleasure or else you fall into a a depression. I think my book is a lot about these characters seeing David suffering, seeing their inability to help David suffering, and then looking back into their own life and seeing how they can confront elements of. Their childhood or their failure, their frustration, or their victimization in a way that David at the moment cannot.
3: And I think it's all these feelings are so relevant for this exact moment. <laughs> I mean, this Absolutely. is what's going right. on in such a macro level. And for so many people, they are sick right now with like this sort of why me, what's going on? And I know there's a diagnosis for it, but the s- symptoms are so different for everybody and the timing is so different and there's not a lot of clarity on any of it. And exactly. what and do every, you do? So. Else,
1: <laughs> right. Everybody's plans. I mean, whether it's a, a birthday party or a wedding or a job thing or a date night or just getting through the next day with your lunatic kids you who know, are sick of their e-learning or, or wherever, wherever all of our families are there's, there's not there's the combination at the moment of frustration in daily life and existential fear and horror of just like seeing the number of people who are, who are dying mm-hmm. and and there is I, I think that that advice that I just gave is, is accidentally appropriate for the moment too where instead of just closing your eyes and screaming until we get to May or June or July or whenever whenever this ends. I think trying to find joy and pleasure, um, even if it's in very different ways or in um in smaller ways or in fewer minutes each day, but but I think it's important because otherwise you you add an element of of depression to what is externally difficult enough already. And I didn't I didn't realize I was depressed when I when I couldn't hang out with people because like any and David experiences this too in the novel, like any time any one interaction with somebody isn't worth it because I would have like a nice lunch, but then I would face the consequences and be bedridden for two days. So like I, I never went out to lunch with anybody. But then it was two years later, and I had never gone out to lunch with anybody. And it's a little bit the same now, except again, I don't recommend you go out to lunch with people. <laughs> but but in, in a, in it's in its smaller way, like it, it's the idea of don't just freeze your life and not give yourself anything and let your tension dominate, you know, and your anxiety define this experience because then it makes the experience itself worse um, as well.
3: Did you find writing helped you through this?
1: I found writing once I was able, so I'm, I'm medicated now. People still don't really understand what's wrong with my brain. They don't really understand why the medications mitigate the symptoms. But I have and I'm very, very grateful for five or six hours of real clarity a day where I can do some writing or do some teaching and then spend time with my, my family. I'm feeling very, very lucky for it. The experience of writing, I felt cathartic in that it helped me remember and have power over and and control some of the the memories of, you know, trying to put my kids to sleep when they were crying and not understanding what was wrong with me. And, and I was scared to think about a lot of that in retrospect. And this book helped me frame it in a way that that was fiction. so I didn't need to relive it necessarily, but the emotions were so real that it helped me understand what I, what I was going through. But more than that, the, writing the book helped me, as I as I mentioned earlier, just like understand what it was like for my wife because I, I i didn't I didn't put myself in her position and to think what it's like trying to balance a professional life and raising kids and taking care of your spouse without the partnership of your spouse. I, I feel like it was a an incredibly important exercise to go through that 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 just made me feel so much more grateful on the other end for for my close friends and wife and parents and sister in a way that that I, I took for granted while I was experiencing it. So in, in that way, I hope that the book has the correct balance of of those negative emotions that we were talking about earlier and a sense of of gratitude and love and sex and joy and, and friendship where, where those elements can exist.
3: That's great. I mean, I, I found myself wondering why you didn't write a memoir, but I, I get it now. I get it.
1: <laughs> right. It, it's funny. I, people, people since reading the novel and then my, my pieces for the times have asked me whether I would want to read, write a memoir and I've, and I've tried to sit down and, and play with the idea, but I can't figure out how, The memoir would be anything other than my complaining, you know. Like it, Mm -hmm. it was like really crappy, and like there's no real logic to it, and like it didn't happen for any real reason, and I didn't, you know, find the medication for any real reason, and and like it, the novel, the first draft of the novel began with a lot more bitching and moaning by the character who suffers from a chronic illness, and I realized it was like enough of it, and it was boring, and nothing more was was coming from it, so I, I cut that down dramatically to only the the just some odd pages that exist in, in his journal and let the other characters live and breathe. And it felt, it felt like a uh, a more useful document than a memoir in this way, but also a, just a more readable. I, I, this, this book, I wanted it to be thrilling and I wanted the reader to, to, you know, need to know how the conversation was going to end and whether she was going to be able to achieve catharsis through confrontation or, or not, et cetera, where the memoir, it was, it was too insular. It was too, too close to me when I was writing it in in that manner.
3: Do you think you're going to write another book? Are you working on something?
1: I I do. So in my, in my other life, I'm an eighth grade English teacher and I, and I run a tutoring company because being a novelist is a a tough way to raise kids and have a mortgage and and all that. (laughs) So I'm, I'm, I'm in this funny position where, I, I just handed in a a book uh, for Penguin Random House called Taking the Stress Out of Homework, but the the idea of um, homework being the stress point in people's lives right now seems so absurd that we're we're trying to figure out you know how how we can be most helpful to parents who are feeling stress in educating their their kids at home or in their kids losing a, a year or so of school or with all the e learning stuff how how I can be of, of service in, in that realm. So I, I think it's going to be healthy for me to escape into the, the nonfiction, helping parents, um, you know, figure out how to navigate life with their kids a little bit. And then then I'll dive back into uh, into the deeper, more emotionally complex world.
3: <laughs> well, well, you have a lot on your plate, um, but it's so nice of you <laughs> to have... Well, first of all, to have taken the time to chat with me, knowing that you only have a set amount of times when you can be coherent in a given day, and so thank you for that.
1: <laughs> also, if this came off as coherent, and it was it was a victory. Yes, I, I <laughs>
3: I'll give you a, I'll give you points for coherence. Um, <laughs> uh, but I also think it's really great that you took your experience and this book. Um, I know it's framed with a political, you know, bent, but I really do think it, it is super helpful as a resource for anybody who's going through chronic pain, which is so many people and the people who love them. So um, it's sort of a, a gift for that community. And, um, and I'm glad it's
1: helped you as well. So
3: thank you so much. Thank you so much for
1: saying that. That really, that really means the world. Oh.
3: And I know you have a zillion friends and everything else, but if you ever need a meal dropped off or something like that, I, I am usually in the city, so I can uh, I can be of service if you need Wouldn't that help.
1: Wouldn't that be funny if this entire interview were just a passive aggressive way for me to ask for like a roast chicken from you at the end? Is that-
3: Brian, I will drop off a roast that- chicken whenever you need it. <laughs>
1: Well, well, thank you so much. I will ask you for a roast chicken off the air. But Perfect. this was a pleasure. And um, <laughs> I, really, I really appreciate your generosity and the time you're spending chatting about this. It means it really does mean a lot. No problem. All
3: right, have a great day.
1: You too. Okay, bye-bye.
3: Thanks to Unsweetened NYC for partnering with us today and for making such badass shirts for women. Many badasses I know are listening now and they need a uniform, so there you go. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.
0: and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5 hetravel at 5hourenergy.com.